And as Joseph and Mary uh, have to flee Bethlehem and they go to Egypt to find refuge, um, in order for them to survive, obviously, um, uh, they had to go on the run. Um, in order for them to have the resources to be able to travel, they had just recently received gifts from the Magi. So they had gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And again, the other children of Abraham uh, provide uh, assistance, uh, in this case, in monetary uh, support uh, to be able to provide for Jesus uh, as he and his family flee to Egypt. So it again, the same pattern gets repeated uh, and the other children of Abraham uh, provide uh, assistance to uh, those who are uh, God's uh, chosen people, in this case, Jesus himself, the Messiah, um, and that provide help for him when his life is threatened. I can still remember where I was on September 11, 2001. At the time, I was serving as a volunteer student missionary in the Marshall Islands as an 8th grade elementary teacher on the island of Ebai. We didn't have internet in our rooms and no one had a TV except the principal. So when we woke up that morning, technically for us, September 12th, he called us all into his apartment and there on the screen were the burning towers. Intuitively, I knew right then and there that my country and our world would never be the same again. Of course, radical Islam was to blame for the attacks, and ever since, my country, the United States of America, has been carrying out military operations in the Middle East. Some have even called it a holy war between the religion of Islam and the Christian West. But is that a true caricature of Islam? No doubt radical Islam has incited terror and violence all over the world. But is the religion really antichrist, as some would have us to believe? Is the religion and the ancestors of its adherents always against God and his people? Or should we be looking at them from a more nuanced perspective? In this episode, we take another look at Islam with PhD candidate Daniel Royo who also is currently serving as the lead pastor of Burnt Mills Seventh-day Adventist Church in Silver Spring, Maryland. We actually went to seminary together and pastored in adjacent districts to one another when we lived in Virginia. I've always appreciated Daniel's ability to articulate complex biblical concepts in ways I think we can all understand. I know you will appreciate the insights he shares in this interview. I started the interview by asking him when he began developing an interest in Islam and its relationship to Christianity. Travis, uh, thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to be a part of your podcast. And uh, it's a blessing to uh, be able to share uh, this time together. Uh, The uh, answer to your question, uh, the first time I began to develop uh, an interest in uh, Islam's relationship with Christianity uh, came uh, about 15 years ago. Um, I uh, recently begun serving as a pastor, and uh, the church where I was serving, uh, we invited a guest speaker um, who had an interest uh, in Islam, uh, particularly as uh, Bible prophecy lays out uh, events that would uh, unfold across time. And upon listening to him speak, uh, it really uh, inspired me to go and study the Bible on the topic uh, and look at it uh, across the entirety of the Bible uh, and see how it is that um, 
there was a relationship that developed um, and the ways in which God used various people groups uh, at various times to accomplish his purposes. Uh, and it has become uh, a real focus of study and uh, an area of interest for me um, that uh, I've been working on uh, for the last 15 years. I don't know about you, but many times when I'm around people discussing the religion of Islam, it inevitably leads to speculation about Islam's prophetic significance in the Bible. I asked Daniel why he thought that was the case. Islam is uh, the really the second largest uh, monotheistic religion in the world, and uh, it's a very prominent presence uh, in all around the world. Uh, and there are currently approximately 1.5, a little bit more, uh, billion Muslims uh, that uh, make up the majority faith in about 48 countries. Uh, so it's a very present uh, reality in our world. Uh, and uh, given the fact that it is uh, not only present, but uh, particularly over the last 50 or 60 years, uh, there's been uh, significant amounts of migration uh, around the world. Um, and so uh, what used to be majority Muslim countries um, Indonesia being perhaps the largest one uh, that uh, is often not thought of. Uh, usually uh, when one thinks of uh, Muslim countries, uh, Muslim majority countries, uh, one thinks of the Middle East. Um, but uh, Indonesia is actually the largest uh, population uh, with about 200 million uh, professed Muslims. Um, but as people have uh, migrated uh, to various places around the world, uh, Islam is present uh, as a faith uh, in countries that used to be predominantly Christian. Um, uh, and so as people have interacted with um, uh, individuals of a Muslim faith uh, and have come in contact with them and have seen uh, even uh, majority Muslim countries uh, growing in their uh, political influence and presence in the world, uh, it raises the question uh, that those who have an interest in Bible prophecy uh, would say, well, if, if it is such a, an important player uh, and uh, a prominent uh, presence in our world today, then wouldn't it appear in prophecy if, if prophecy indeed does foretell events that would take place in the future? And so students of Bible prophecy have uh, developed that, in, uh, you know, crossing of uh, current events and uh, the way that things have shaped up in the world with then uh, bringing that question to Scripture and saying, does the Bible indeed uh, incorporate uh, the totality of what it is that would happen uh, and especially speak to our day uh, as we are uh, seeing how it is that prophecy is fulfilled across time? Daniel just gave us a great introduction to the global influence and impact of Islam but it is almost impossible to understand the tumultuous modern-day relationship between Christianity in the West and Islam in the East without a thorough understanding of history, in particular biblical history because both Christianity and Islam claim Abraham as their father. This is where Daniel really began to share some fascinating perspectives, beginning with the birth of Ishmael. The Bible itself, in its in its broad scope, um, uh, especially starting in Genesis chapter twelve, um, and then basically covering the rest of the Bible, uh, focuses in on uh, 
what's often referred to as the the original monotheist um, Abraham. And Abraham uh, in Genesis chapter twelve uh, appears there uh, as having a conversation with God, uh, in which God promises to him that uh, he would do great things for him. Particularly, he promises that he would become a great nation, uh, have a great name, and uh, would be a blessing to the world. And uh, this is promise is made at a time in which uh, Abram, uh, as his name was at the time, has no children. Um, and so it, it's kind of an uh, interesting interplay that happens over the next several chapters uh, between Genesis chapter 12 uh, and Genesis chapter 15. Uh, time and again, uh, God comes back to Abram and reassures him uh, and tells him, uh, you are going to have uh, a tremendous number of descendants. Um, but uh, all of these promises are made uh, without Abraham actually having any children. So it's in, when we get to Genesis chapter 16, uh, there, uh, the very problem uh, that uh, underlies all of these promises, uh, the childlessness uh, that uh, Abram and his wife uh, Sarai have, um, kind of comes to a, a boiling point. And uh, Sarai, as Abram's wife, uh, is concerned um, that uh, there's not going to be any children that are going to be born to their uh, family. Uh, in particular, they are uh, at a relatively advanced age. Um, at the end of Genesis chapter 16, it uh, tells us that uh, Abram was 86 years old uh, as these uh, events play out. And uh, Sarah was about 10 years younger than him, so she would have been about 76 years old. Um, so they are uh, well advanced in years. Um, Sarai is, for all intents and purposes, past her childbearing years. And uh, so Sarai uh, comes up with a solution uh, to the problem. And uh, in the ancient Near East, uh, there were those who uh, adopted an approach where they had uh, surrogacy uh, as a solution to uh, couples who could not have children. So uh, it appears that Sarai drew on that practice that was uh, present in the culture around her. Uh, and so she, su she suggested that Abram marry her, uh, basically her maidservant or slave, uh, who was an Egyptian uh, woman by the name of Hagar. And so uh, as the story plays out there in Genesis chapter 16, that's indeed what uh, Abram and Sarai do. And uh, so uh, Abram uh, goes into uh, Hagar and uh, Hagar gets pregnant uh, and as soon as Hagar gets pregnant, it creates a tremendous amount of tension uh, in the household um, because now Hagar, uh, rather than being uh, Sarai's slave, uh, is now elevated in status. Um, uh, she's now basically Abram's wife or, or sort of concubine, um, but under the circumstances, it's understood that the child that's going to be born um, would be considered Sarai's legal child. Uh, and thus, uh, she would be able to uh, look at that child uh, as if it were her own. Um, and the legal status of inheritance and everything that would be related to that um, would now uh, be considered uh, to be the lineage of Sarai uh, and Abram. Now, uh, the child who is to be born is would again be Abram's uh, biological child, Sarai's legal child. Uh, and Hagar just happens to be um, the one uh, caught up in uh, all of this circumstance. What becomes interesting then 
uh, is the way in which uh, Hagar and Sarai interact. Uh, Hagar's pregnancy uh, apparently goes to her head, and uh, she appears to now uh, look at her uh, mistress, uh, Sarai, uh, through that lens. Uh, and so Genesis chapter 16 and verse 4 uh recording what it is that happens once uh, Hagar is uh, pregnant, uh, it says, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. So the the tension or the drama uh, grows uh, there in the household, uh, and uh, Sarai is not handling it well. I uh, wouldn't imagine anyone would handle it well. Uh, and so uh, Sarai decides to... Um, take out her frustrations on Hagar. Um, and, uh, and so in Genesis 16 and verse six, uh, Abram, uh, hands over to Sarai, the, uh, responsibility or, uh, the opportunity to decide what it is that would happen. And so, uh, the passage says when Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, she fled from her presence. So Hagar, not knowing what else to do, uh, runs away. And, uh, based on the account that, uh, follows and the place where she's found, uh, it appears that, uh, she, uh, was trying her best, uh, to run back home. Uh, she was on her way back to Egypt, um, in a time and a place where, uh, survival, uh, for the most part was dependent on being a part of a community. Uh, Abram and, and Sarai were living as, as nomads, uh, traveling around from place to place, um, for a, a, a young pregnant uh, Egyptian woman uh, to be in the region of Canaan, um, she probably would not have survived very long. Uh, and so her uh, chosen solution uh, was to go back to Egypt. And it's on her way there, um, where the way the Bible records the events, um, in Genesis chapter 16 and verse 7, there's an encounter uh, where she is at a spring uh, on the way to uh, Shur, which uh, was a uh, region uh, more or less on the border between Canaan and Egypt. Uh, and uh, the Bible says, uh, Genesis 16, verse 7, now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Let me jump in here. For those of you who don't know, the angel of the Lord is kind of a technical term used in the Old Testament to refer to God himself or as some might say, the pre-incarnate Christ, appearing to man in physical form. So the significance here is that this is the first time in recorded scripture where God is personally manifesting himself in this way, thus elevating the importance of this interaction, as we shall see later on. As Genesis 16 continues to record uh, what it is that happened there, um, it, the uh, events as they play out um, are again notable in light of particularly the promises that God had previously made to Abram. Uh, so in Genesis chapter 16 uh, and verse 10, uh, the angel, uh, speaking here to uh, Hagar, repeats a portion of the promises that uh, God had previously made to Abram. Uh, so it says, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Well, that's uh, exactly the promise uh, that God had made to uh, Abram, uh, that his descendants uh, would be 
uh, in Genesis 13, 14 to 16, that they would be as the dust of the earth. Uh, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 to 5, um, that his descendants would be as the stars of the sky. Um, and so this great uh, multiplication of uh, Abram's descendants uh, gets repeated here uh, to Ishmael, who would be his firstborn son. Um, and so it's as if God says, I recognize that uh, this is Abram's child. And um, I made those promises to Abram. Uh, and so I am going to honor my promise, even though, uh, as uh, will come later in the book of Genesis, uh, Ishmael, uh, or the child of Hagar, uh, is not in fact to be the one through whom all of the promises would be fulfilled. Uh, in particular, the one through whom the Messiah would come and uh, all of what God had intended uh, to take place would take place. Nonetheless, uh, Ishmael is still uh, recognized and and um, still uh, rev- or in essence um, not forgotten by God, uh, and he still honors him as uh, Abram's son. In Genesis chapter 16 and verse 11, um, we find another very significant first um, that appears in the Bible. Uh, it uh, records, it says, the angel of the Lord said to Hagar, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you will call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. The first time in the Bible that God names it child uh, is here. Um, she tells Hagar um, the gender of the child, uh, obviously in the days before uh, ultrasounds, um, Hagar finds out here that uh, uh, she is uh, bearing a son, uh, and uh, the name Ishmael uh, in Hebrew means God hears. And so here God uh, is intending uh, there to be a memorial and a recognition uh, that God has heard uh, Hagar's cry. Uh, He has paid attention to what it is that Hagar was going through uh, and is recognizing the circumstance she has faced uh, and uh, does so in such a way that uh, he actually gives um, a name that is uh, encapsulating uh, what has happened here. Uh, And I think it indicates the idea that God's ear is always open uh, to those who cry out to him. uh, And regardless of their background or circumstance, uh, God is attuned to uh, the cries of those who uh, are in need of his help. Uh, And what's, I think, particularly applicable here is Abram and Sarai were presumably those whom God had called. So it is even when uh, there are those who uh, feel like they have been uh, mistreated or um, been done wrong uh, by those who claim to be followers of God, uh, God even hears their cry uh, and seeks uh, to provide uh, help uh, and uh, assistance as he can uh, to any who would reach out to him. And so the name Ishmael uh, carries that uh, meaning and significance in it. The third significant first uh, that uh, appears here in this passage in Genesis chapter 16 um, uh, appears in verse 13. uh, And uh, here Hagar is speaking, uh, and it says, uh, Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? The first time in the Bible somebody claims to have seen God, again, since the fall in Genesis 3, is right here. And it, again, is uh, this Egyptian uh, lady um, who is uh, found in this 
very difficult circumstance, uh, and she recognizes uh, with whom she is speaking, and that this angel of the Lord is none other than God himself. Uh, and so uh, she uh, affirms that and says, I have actually seen the God who sees me. Um, and uh, it is actually also the first time in the Bible anyone actually names God and says, here is a name that I am going to give to God, uh, the name in Hebrew, El Roy, you are the God who sees. So all of these very significant events uh, happen as uh, Hagar in her uh, pregnancy, uh, carrying Abram's child, uh, was fleeing uh, the household, uh, and God sees fit uh, to come and um, bring that uh, affirmation to her uh, and uh, draws that connection with her uh, in uh, finding her in this difficult circumstance. As the story continues, however, um, that was not to be the child of promise. Uh, Ishmael, uh, even though uh, he was Abram's firstborn, um, as the story uh, unfolds in Genesis chapter 17, uh, God has to come and clarify for uh, Abram that Ishmael, in fact, will not be uh, the child of promise. Uh, instead, uh, Sarai would have uh, a son herself, uh, a miraculous uh, conception, uh, and that uh, that child, uh, who gets named Isaac, uh, which means laughter, because both Abram and Sarai uh, laugh at God uh, when he makes these promises, um, but Isaac uh, will in fact be the one through whom the totality of the covenant uh, would be established, fulfilled, uh, and um how it is that God would fulfill his uh, promises and purposes uh, for his people. What then fascinates me and has been uh, the topic of study besides uh, looking at uh, this account of, of Ishmael in Genesis 16, and uh, he also appears uh, in a couple of other passages uh, in uh, Genesis, uh, is then to uh, look at the broader picture. Um, because even though Ishmael is Abram's firstborn, and uh, all of that encounter with the angel of the Lord takes place. Um, later, Abram and Sarai have Isaac. Those are not the only children uh, that uh, Abram and uh, later his, under his name Abraham, uh, um, the children they have. And so in Genesis chapter 25, uh, we find recorded uh, how it is that uh, Abraham, after Sarah's death, uh, still has uh, several more children. And so uh, reading from Genesis chapter 25 and verse 1, uh, it says, Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jakshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And then uh, the following verses record uh, several of the descendants uh, of uh, those children that he has. Uh, but he had six more children. So uh, in the end, uh, Abraham uh, has eight uh, sons uh, that are born to him. And uh, obviously, Isaac is the child of promise, uh, but the other seven, uh, as we follow uh, the history as it unfolds in the Bible, um, at various times, some of them uh, appear uh, in such a way that it's uh, as if God, in speaking to Ishmael uh, and making the promises that he did to Hagar uh, in the passage we just looked at in Genesis 16, anticipates um, what it is that he will do uh, and that he still has a role for the other children of Abraham who were born to Abraham, but were outside of the promise um, that he had intended to be fulfilled uh, in Isaac and Isaac's descendants through Jacob. 
So this is the point. Although the promise of the Messiah was given to Abraham through Isaac, and again to Isaac through Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, the other children of Abraham who eventually settle in the region of Arabia, although not on center stage, will still have a role to play in the redemptive history of mankind, as we shall see. And we can see the beginning of this role right away, as Daniel points out with the story of Joseph. So as Genesis 37 records, um, the brothers go out to uh, tend their flocks uh, as they were trying to find pasture. And uh, so they are away from the camp. And uh, Jacob sends uh, his son Joseph to go and check up on them uh, and uh, find out what they're doing. Uh, When Joseph eventually finds them, uh, they uh, see him coming from a distance away. And uh, knowing that they are away from their father and uh, are are here in a relatively isolated place, uh, they conspire together, uh, at least some of the brothers, uh, conspire together to kill Joseph. And uh, as they uh, begin this conspiracy, uh, not all of them are on board. Uh, and uh, their oldest brother, Reuben, uh, tries to discourage them from doing it. Uh, and so while they decide what to do, um, they... Uh, strip Joseph uh, of this uh, special coat that he has, uh, and they throw him into uh, a pit, um, which uh, would have been a uh, probably a dried cistern uh, that would have been uh, present there in the ancient Near East. And as they throw him into the pit, um, Genesis 37 verse 25 uh, records uh, what happens. It says, they sat down to eat a meal. Uh, then they lifted up their eyes and looked, And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So at the very moment in which uh, the brothers are trying to decide uh, whether or not to kill their brother Joseph, uh, who shows up except uh, Ishmaelites, uh, the other children of Abraham uh, that also lived in that same uh, area of the world. Uh, And it's uh, not that the Ishmaelites uh, are showing up uh, because they had any plans or, or that they knew that uh, Joseph happened to be there. Um, they simply are uh, on their way to Egypt to uh, carry on business and conduct um, commerce. Uh, it's what the brothers decide to do uh, then becomes notable. Uh, and the passage itself, interestingly enough, uh, combines Ishmaelites and Midianites uh, as apparently being part of this uh, group that is traveling. So it again, the Midianites being uh, descendants of Abraham through Keturah, uh, obviously the Ishmaelites being descendants of Abraham through Hagar, um, they are are listed here uh, as being part of this group. Uh, and so the brothers, uh, Jacob's children, uh, decide that they're going to sell their own brother Joseph uh, to this group of Ishmaelites, uh, who would have been uh, their cousins, uh, and they're going to at least make some money off the deal, and then they're not responsible for having murdered their brother. Uh, and so. Uh, in this way, uh, they feel like they are able to deal with the problem uh, and uh, get rid of Joseph. They don't have to listen to his uh, dreams or uh, see his father uh, treat him specially anymore. Uh, instead, uh, he's now off their hands. The Ishmaelites then take uh, Joseph from there, uh, along with uh, uh, whatever else they had in their caravan, uh, and they go down to Egypt and they sell him uh, in Egypt. Uh, as a slave. 
the story as it continues through the book of Genesis uh, recounts how it is that uh, then Joseph, uh, through a series of events, uh, not only does he rise in prominence in Potiphar's household, uh, but then he ends up uh, being thrown into prison when he's falsely accused. Uh, and uh, then uh, from prison, uh, he ends up being elevated to being uh, the uh, overseer of Egypt uh, next to the Pharaoh uh, to solve the uh, coming famine. Uh, as uh, that famine then uh, sets in, uh, Joseph's brothers uh, are in need of uh, food. Uh, and so they come to Egypt, and uh, Joseph is not quite sure whether to trust them or not. So he goes through a series of tests. Um, and eventually, uh, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. What I find fascinating about this, this is Genesis chapter 45, uh, is how Joseph, uh, reflecting on those events, uh, re recounts uh, how things had played out. And so uh, in uh, Genesis 45, um, reading verses 5 to 8, uh, it says this, But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, uh, with yourselves because you sold me here. Instead, notice what Joseph says. He says, For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And then he emphasizes in verse 8, he says, So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So Joseph attributes his presence in Egypt to being the work of God. Well, when we go back and look at the actual events of the story, it was Ishmaelites and Midianite traders who bought him and took him to Egypt and sold him there. And it was his own brothers who sold him. So what what we look at as being, you know, his brothers out of their jealousy sold him, and the Ishmaelites and Midianites happened to be there at the right time to buy him, uh, and they take him down to Egypt. In fact, Joseph says was providential, and that it was God who was at work there in bringing things about to uh, not only save uh, Joseph from the potential death at the hand of his brothers, uh, but also to uh, take him to Egypt and place him in a position where he would later be able to save his own family from the famine that would come. So the Ishmaelites and Midianite traders uh, in this particular story become instruments that God uses uh, to bring about the um, circumstance that he was uh, planning. Uh, and so uh, it's fascinating for me to see that uh, the uh, Ishmaelites here uh, are instruments in the hand of God that God uses um, to uh, not not because they intended to, not because God came and spoke to them or anything like that, but instead simply going about the business that they were doing, they become the means by which God accomplishes his purpose, and he preserves and protects Joseph, uh, the one who is going to be the savior for his own family, uh, in the sense that he is going to provide food for them. And so uh, they become the means uh, of God accomplishing his purposes. So now you can see the precedent that Daniel has established here with the story of Joseph. In a time of distress of a prominent future leader of God's people, the other descendants of Abraham play a pivotal role in his protection from imminent disaster. I then ask him if there was another example he could share where this precedent is repeated. Well, it picks up uh, not too long after that, um, when uh, the... Uh, Joseph's family eventually moves to Egypt, um, and 
the close of the book of Genesis uh, has them uh, there in, in Egypt, and, and that's where the family uh, now settles. Um, but uh, events take a turn, and uh, all of the uh, children of, of uh, Jacob uh, and their descendants, uh, the children of Israel, end up becoming uh, enslaved in Egypt. And uh, there is, uh, in the midst of that, um, Pharaoh attempts to uh, try to uh, keep uh, the children of Israel oppressed. Uh, he becomes concerned about their growing numbers. And so uh, he uh, instructs that every boy, uh, baby born to uh, any Hebrew mother um, was to be thrown into the River Nile. Uh, in that, uh, there's one mother by the name of Jochebed who uh, decides that she's going to do what she can to preserve her baby. And so uh, in Exodus chapter 2, it records how she uh, makes a, a little basket um, and uh, makes it waterproof uh, and then puts her baby uh, in the uh, River Nile. Uh, and uh, the baby ends up being discovered by uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, and so he gets raised. Uh, in Pharaoh's household, and uh, that's uh, obviously great significant figure in uh, the Old Testament, uh, Moses. As Moses grows up, um, he, uh, growing up in his house, uh, uh, probably heard uh, about um, the promises that had been made and that one day there would be a great deliverance uh, that would happen for the people uh, and that they would be uh, set free from Egypt. Uh, and so he later on, uh, at uh, a much older age um, is uh, on his way through Egypt uh, and he sees uh, a, an Egyptian uh, slave master uh, beating uh, one of uh, Moses's uh, fellow uh, Hebrews. And uh, Moses feels like, uh, or he, he's inclined to believe that uh, uh, if he intervenes, uh, then perhaps he can uh, begin the process of setting uh, the people free. And uh, so he attacks the Egyptian uh, and uh, thinking that he got away with it, um, he buries uh, the Egyptian. Uh, but then the following day, uh, two uh, Hebrews who are in conflict, um, when Moses tries to step in and resolve the conflict, uh, they tell him uh, that uh, the knowledge of uh, what he had done uh, in killing the Egyptian slave master the day before uh, was widely known. And so Moses realizes that uh, his life is now uh, threatened by the Pharaoh. Uh, and so he has to decide what it is that he's going to do. And so his choice, um, as it's recorded there in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 15, uh, it says, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat by a well. So we find the similar sequence uh, that we just looked at with the story of Joseph, where here Moses uh, is going to be the deliverer for his people. Um, and when he finds his life threatened, the place where he finds refuge uh, is in the land of Midian, which are, again, the uh, descendants of Abraham uh, through Keturah. It's there in the land of Midian uh, where uh, he encounters uh, men uh, variously named by the known by the name of either Jethro or Rewel, and uh, this uh, man provides him refuge, uh, provides him a place to live. Um, uh, Moses ends up marrying one of his daughters, Zipporah, uh, 
and uh, Moses also works for him and tends his sheep for 40 years in the wilderness. So here we see the, the pattern uh, gets repeated. And uh, when someone who God uh, had intentions for uh, and plans for finds himself with his life being threatened, uh, he finds refuge uh, among uh, the other children of Abraham. And eventually, uh, later on in the story, even after Moses uh, sets uh, the people free from Egypt uh, with God having sent the plagues, um, they are on their way uh, to Mount Sinai. And when they arrive there, uh, Jethro again appears uh, and he brings uh, Moses's family with him, uh, his wife and two sons. Uh, and uh, in Exodus chapter 18, uh, not only does uh, Jethro give uh, Moses some counsel and uh, how it is that he can uh, best be an administrator uh, of uh, this group of people that he is leading, um, but what's also notable uh, is that um, Jethro uh, professes faith in the God of the Hebrews, uh, and even more than that, uh, he participates in the worship um, uh, of God with them. Uh, in Exodus 18 and verse 12, uh, it says, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So he participates in the worship of the God of heaven. Um, he also um, uh, sits down with them, which would have been, again, a part of their worship. Uh, so it appears that uh, here among the other children of Abraham, Jethro uh, from the land of Midian, uh, he worships the God of heaven uh, and acknowledges him uh, as being uh, the only uh, true God. Um, and so the knowledge uh, of God gets preserved uh, in some way, uh, even among the other children of Abraham, uh, and uh, they uh, participate uh, in that same uh, lineage uh, uh, in carrying on that name. So now we have seen two prominent examples from the Old Testament involving this providential interplay. But like me, you might be wondering, does this principle continue into the New Testament as well? I specifically wanted to know whether Jesus or some other prominent apostle was helped in a similar way by the descendants of Ishmael or the other children of Abraham. In order to understand it, um, it uh, requires first uh, going to a prophecy that appears still in the Old Testament, um, but it ties in to the New Testament. And uh, the prophecy appears in Isaiah chapter 60. Uh, and this is uh, a uh, messianic prophecy. It anticipates the Messiah um, who was to come. And um, Isaiah chapter 60 verses 1 to 6 um, record um, uh, how it is that God anticipates um, those who would come uh, to recognize um, the arrival of the Messiah. And uh, I'm just going to read verse 1 uh, and then skip down to verse 6. Uh, so verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, referring to the Messiah uh, having come. And then in verse 6, there's a particular uh, reference uh, here. And notice what it says. The multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. So here there is a reference to uh, the other children of Abraham, Midian uh, being 
uh, one of those descendants uh, of Abraham through Keturah, and then Ephah and Sheba uh, being children of those same descendants that appeared back in Genesis 25. So the description here is of the other children of Abraham um, participating in uh, the uh, arrival of the Messiah, and particularly there's a reference at the end of the passage, uh, or verse 6 in particular, uh, it says that they shall be, bring gold and incense. When it comes to the uh, gold and incense coming to the Messiah, there's a particular story uh, that uh, refers to those particular items being brought to Jesus himself uh, in his early life. And so in Matthew chapter 2, uh, find uh, the story of uh, three, uh, or often, I guess, traditionally referred to as three magi, or uh, kings, sometimes they're called, which, um, whenever they're uh, portrayed, uh, uh, either in nativity scenes or uh, on Christmas cards or uh, any of those kinds of settings, um, they're often portrayed as kings because uh, in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 3, uh, it says, The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So that's where the, the Christmas song, uh, We Three Kings of Orient Are, uh, draws from Isaiah chapter 60. Um, they're often portrayed as coming on camels, uh, which again is from Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 6, which I just read. Um, and so these, this particular passage um, has uh, frequently been applied to um, the Magi um, who come uh, in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, and when they come, they arrive uh, first in Jerusalem. Uh, they look for the king of the Jews. Uh, when they can't find him, um, uh, Herod attempts to deceive them, uh, directs them to Bethlehem. Uh, and when they get to Bethlehem, uh, there they provide the gifts um, that they had brought. Uh, and um, Matthew chapter 2 and uh, verse 11 records their arrival. It says, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. And here are the, those gifts uh, that were referred to in Isaiah 60 and verse 6, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the participate in the worship of Jesus, again, just like Jethro previously had participated in the worship of God. Um, taking the passage from Isaiah 60, they are uh, the descendants of the other children of Abraham uh, outside the covenant line. Uh, but nonetheless, here when uh, Jesus is uh, still a young child, um, they arrive, worship him, provide the gifts, just as the prophecy had foretold they would. Um, and it is their arrival um, that also creates uh, a difficult circumstance for Mary and Joseph, um, because when Herod realizes that uh, they were not coming back to tell him um, where they had found the child, that instead they had left, uh, Herod becomes serious, and so he sends uh, soldiers to Bethlehem to attempt to kill uh, this newborn baby that uh, they had said was a king. And so again, in this case, Jesus himself, um, who is the Messiah and uh, is uh, the fulfillment of uh, all of the prophecies um, that had anticipated his coming, he finds himself uh, under a death threat uh, from none other than Herod, the king. And so his family uh, is forced to flee. And as Joseph and Mary uh, have to flee Bethlehem and they go to Egypt to find refuge, um, in order for them to survive, obviously, um, uh, they had to go on the run. Um, in order for them to have the resources to be able to travel, they had just recently received gifts from the Magi. So they had gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And again, the other children of Abraham uh, provide 
assistance, uh, in this case in monetary uh, support, uh, to be able to provide for Jesus uh, as he and his family flee to Egypt. So again, the same pattern gets repeated, uh, and the other children of Abraham uh, provide uh, assistance to uh, those who are uh, God's uh, chosen people, in this case, Jesus himself, the Messiah, um, and that provide help for him when his life is threatened. I don't know about you, but at this point in the interview, my mind really began to spin with intrigue. Joseph, Moses, now Jesus provided with the pivotal help they need in a time of crisis by the other descendants of Abraham. But wait, there's more. Uh, later on, uh, and this is uh, after Jesus' life uh, and uh, after um, he has even uh, departed and ascended to heaven, uh, in the early church, uh, the um, message had uh, spread of Jesus and who he was, uh, his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, and uh, there were those who uh, were beginning to teach and preach about it. Uh, at the same time, there was opposition uh, on the part of some of the Jewish leaders, and uh, one of the uh, more notable uh, opponents uh, was a man by the name of Saul. And uh, Saul uh, was commissioned uh, by the uh, Jewish leaders to make his way to Damascus uh, to go and um, harass, persecute uh, uh, some of the Christian believers who were there. And as he is on his way there, God encounters him, a person of Jesus, and uh, confronts Saul uh, and uh, tells him that what he is doing is contrary to his plans and that he needs to change direction. And so, over the course of three days, uh, Saul uh, ends up uh, being converted. Um, a man there by the name of Ananias comes and prays for him, baptizes him, uh, and Saul goes from being a persecutor of Christians to a follower of Jesus. Following that time, um, Saul, uh, within a short period of time, uh, begins to teach uh, and preach in Damascus, uh, and uh, the Jewish leaders who are there don't know what to do. Uh, there is this man who was supposed to come and help them out and get rid of the Christians has now become a Christian. And um, so the, the Jewish leaders uh, there in uh, Damascus um, decide that they are going to uh, kill Saul. So in Acts chapter 9, uh, in verse 23, uh, it records the following. It says, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. As the story continues there in the book of Acts, um, it picks up in verse 26 and describes Saul as having gone to Jerusalem. The problem is that between Acts chapter 9 and verse 25 and Acts chapter 9 and verse 26, uh, there is a gap uh, of uh, events uh, that uh, take place. And... Uh, it does not appear in the book of Acts uh, as to what exactly happens. Um, instead, uh, we have to go to um, Paul's, or he later becomes known as Paul. In his writings, um, he records where it is that he went when he attempted to escape uh, Damascus uh, in order to preserve his life. And so in uh, the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 1, uh, we find recorded um, what it is that happened. Uh, and uh, beginning in verse 15, so Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15, uh, Paul writes, When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace 
to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. And it's that particular pass or phrase at the beginning of verse 17 that lets us know that there was a gap between um, the two stories as recorded there in Acts. But notice what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 17, where it is that he went. He says, uh, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So uh, the place that he goes to find refuge is, he specifically names it as a geographical location, Arabia, but Arabia is the area inhabited by the other children of Abraham. So it is, again, Paul, who is going to, to be a prolific writer, he is going to uh, be one of the great missionaries of the early Christian church. When he finds his life threatened, um, in this case by his fellow Jews, uh, for preaching about Jesus and, and teaching about uh, his uh, resurrection, the place that uh, Paul goes to find refuge uh, is the region inhabited by the other children of Abraham. And there he again is able to survive, uh, and then later is going to go on to uh, you know, write more than a third of the New Testament uh, as he um, uh, is instrumental uh, in uh, forming uh, what is going to be the early Christian church. So it again repeats the same pattern that uh, these prominent figures uh, in, in biblical record, uh, Joseph, uh, Moses, Jesus himself, uh, and here Paul, uh, time and again, uh, are find refuge among the other children of Abraham when their lives are under uh, threat. So now the million-dollar question, how does this biblical premise apply to Islam's interaction with Christianity considering Islam as a religion did not exist until the 7th century. First, I think it's important to uh, distinguish um, as to how it is that the Bible uh, understands people groups and how the Bible defines uh, God's perspective uh, on how it is that groups of people uh, are fit into his plan. Uh, so uh, Muslims uh, today even um, uh, claim to trace their spiritual heritage to Abraham uh, through uh, Ishmael. Um, uh, in fact, uh, Muslim tradition uh, points to um, Ishmael uh, as being the one uh, who was sacrificed uh, by his father, or at least put on the altar, um, rather than Isaac, as the Bible records it. Um, and uh, Ishmael is widely considered to be uh, the uh, ancestor of the Arabs um, as they uh, you know, live in, in Arabia and that particular region of the world. Um, so there is a um, biological lineage um, that can be drawn. Um, however, the way in which the Bible views uh, groups of people uh, transitions uh, at the time period of Jesus. Uh, and we can see it play out uh, in the way in which uh, we understand Christians to be today. Uh, so in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29, uh, we find God's definition of how it is that he uh, understands the descendants of Abraham, uh, particularly after the time of Jesus, uh, to be. And uh, that particular distinction is an important one uh, as we discuss uh, the entirety of this topic. So in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29, um, the Apostle Paul writes, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So Paul here defines 
descendants uh, of Abraham as being, uh, or at least those who would be of the covenant, participating in all of the promises, um, which again included uh, the promise of the Messiah, uh, tracing all the way back uh, to where we started this conversation right now in Genesis chapter 2. Um, all of that uh, is defined by those who are followers of Jesus. Um, and to be a follower of Jesus, it, one's ethnicity doesn't matter. Um, in other words, there are followers of Jesus today from all uh, nations of the world uh, and all walks of life. Um, and so it's not a particular uh, nationality or ethnic heritage that defines one as being a follower of Jesus. And then in turn, uh, according to Paul's definition here, a seed of Abraham, uh, instead it is one's faith profession. But the same thing can be said of uh, Islam. So even though uh, Islam, uh, as uh, a historical entity, began in Arabia, um, and the initial followers were uh, from Arabia and were Arabs, uh, obviously since that time, um, the faith of Islam has spread uh, and uh, in fact, statistically speaking, uh, there are more adherents of Islam um, who are not Arabs than are Arabs. So Indonesia, um, obviously, um, there are uh, large pockets of uh, Islam in uh, Central Asia. Um, uh, the uh, Chechens, for example, in Russia uh, are, are majority Muslim. Um, there are uh, sections in uh, southeastern Europe um, that uh, have significant Muslim populations. Um, lots of Africa um, have uh, Muslim uh, adherents. Uh, and so uh, it's at the time period of, of Jesus, uh, and as uh, individuals have the choice to become followers of his, and his command was to go and make disciples of all nations, that we find a transition of how it is that God understands who his people are. So he had been working primarily through the biological children of Abraham, through Isaac and Jacob, um, in what uh, the Old Testament records. But it's here in the New Testament where we find that transition, um, and that helps define for us even how it is that God perceives the world to be today. So um, what were the people of promise uh, in the Old Testament? Uh, again, those biological descendants um, through uh, Isaac and Jacob um, would today be those who profess faith in Jesus. Um, they are who, those whom uh, God considers to be uh, those of the promise today within that same covenant of Abraham. Um, but just as in the Old Testament, um, we had other biological children of Abraham um, that we've been talking about, Ishmael and Midian being among them. Um, today, there are other faiths who trace their spiritual ancestry to Abraham and they are monotheists, um, but albeit as a Christian, there are elements of what they teach that I disagree with and I don't find lines up with the Bible uh, as a follower of Jesus. And so it's in that uh, understanding of how the Bible defines who God's people are, um, how we understand uh, the covenant uh, promises to play out today, that then I look at, at uh, events of history through that lens. And I see, uh, as you had asked about the Reformation, um, it's at that time where um, the rise of Islam had been going on for uh, several centuries. Uh, so uh, Muhammad uh, is born in approximately 570 uh, AD. Um, 
the uh, notable beginning uh, or the date that is considered to mark um, the, the initiation of Islam uh, is in the year 622 AD. Uh, and it's at that time that um, Muhammad and uh, his followers flee Mecca and uh, they go to Medina to set up uh, a community uh, where they uh, begin to practice Islam. And then um, through uh, conquest and uh, through expansion, they then spread out of the uh, Arabian Peninsula, um, and uh, those uh, followers of the teachings of Muhammad um, then spread uh, across North Africa, uh, up through the Levant, uh, and into uh, southeastern Europe. Um, and so they begin to uh, advance uh, and take over areas that had previously been uh, majority Christian. And uh, these particular tensions go on, again, for centuries. Um, and there are times at which uh, the uh, uh, Muslim uh, dominance grows. Uh, obviously, uh, by the year uh, 711, uh, they uh, invade the peninsula of Spain and Portugal. Um, they advance all the way through until the year uh, 732, um, where they are stopped um, by the French uh, nobleman Charles Martel um, at the uh, uh, area of the Pyrenees, um, the Battle of Tours. Uh, and so there's a uh, uh, tremendous amount of expansion that happens, uh, but then uh, the uh, Christians uh, in Spain fight back um, such that by year, the year 1492, um, the Muslims have been expelled from Spain. Um, and so there's a back and forth through all of this time. For our purposes, uh, uh, the time period of the Reformation uh, uh, brings particular interest. Uh, and this is because uh, the uh, perhaps the character who's most associated with the Reformation is Martin Luther. And uh, he begins his protest uh, in the year 1517. Uh, as he begins his protest, um, he begins by questioning uh, some of the practices of uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, that he was a part of, and um, he's questioning their uh, practice of indulgences, um, but that then sparks a, a further questioning that expands uh, the realm that he wanted to take into account. Uh, and as he expands those questions, um, obviously it draws the attention of the church, and the church uh, begins to attempt to stop uh, him from spreading his ideas. At that very same time, in uh, what at that time was the uh, uh, majority Muslim uh, region and uh, the the area of the world uh, that uh, had historically been Muslim had uh, changed hands in terms of who it was that was ruling. Uh, and at that particular time, it was uh, the Ottomans um, that were based in Turkey. And uh, they decide, uh, under the leadership of uh, a sultan by the name of uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, um, he decides that he's going to invade Europe uh, at this very time. And so he begins uh, his advance uh, into Eastern Europe. And it just so happens that uh, the ruler uh, in the area where Martin Luther is, uh, is a man by the name of Charles V. He's an emperor uh, who rules both Spain and Germany, and he's a devout Catholic. And he considers Martin Luther to be a threat uh, to um obviously the stability uh, of his region as well as uh, the theological uh, underpinnings uh, of uh, the the kingdom and uh, at the same time um, it is uh, his cousin who is the ruler of Vienna and the Muslims 
under the leadership of the Ottomans, have gotten there to the uh, gates of Vienna by the year 1520 and 1521. So uh, Charles chooses to provide assistance to um, his cousin. Uh, and in fact, uh, it is uh, in Reformation history, uh, one of the uh, most prominent events is uh, referred to as the uh, Diet of Worms. Uh, it was a council meeting uh, that took place with uh, the noblemen of Germany, uh, with Charles V present there. And uh, Martin Luther plays a very prominent role there as uh, his faith is questioned and um, he's given the opportunity to recant. Um, but that particular meeting uh, also uh, involves uh, the noblemen of Germany attempting to determine what is it they're going to do to provide assistance to Vienna um, and to stop this Ottoman invasion that was taking place. And so I want to read um, what a couple of historians uh, have said about how it is that uh, this tension between uh, the area that is majority Christian uh, and the Ottomans who were invading uh, and how this played out. So uh, reading first from uh, an author by the name of Diarmid McCulloch in uh, his book, the Reformation, uh, page 55, he writes the following. He says, quote, the fear that this Islamic aggression engendered in Europe was an essential background to the Reformation, convincing many on both sides that God's anger was poised to strike down the Christian world and so making it all the more essential to please God by affirming the right form of Christian belief against other Christians. It is impossible to understand the mood of 16th century Europe without bearing in mind the deep anxiety inspired by the Ottoman Empire. End quote. So that's how Diarmid McCulloch um, defines what was taking place. They're, they were trying to determine uh, and say, we need the right Christianity because if we have the wrong one, God will not protect us and save us. And the reason they were so concerned is because the Ottomans were invading at that very time. Now, um, to your question about uh, where does one see God's hand at work, notice what it is that happens uh, in, the, in Martin Luther's understanding of the current events of his time. Again, reading from the same author, Diarmid McCulloch, same book, The Reformation, pages 54 to 55, uh, it says this, quote, Martin Luther considered that the Turks were agents of God's anger against sinful Christendom. Indeed, the Turkish invasions were paradoxically good news for Luther. If Charles V had not been so distracted in his efforts to save Europe's southeastern frontier, he would perhaps have had the will and the resources to crush the Protestant revolt in its infancy in the 1520s and 1530s. When Charles did strike, it was too late, end quote. So Martin Luther, uh, as uh, Diarmid McCulloch records here, from his perspective, the fellow Christians who were attempting to stop this understanding of truth um, were trying to stop Martin Luther from sharing his ideas. They were, in fact, participating more in being uh, against the work of God and against what it is that God was trying to do. And that by the very fact that the Ottomans were invading at that very time, they were, in fact, furthering God's purposes by distracting Charles V and having him send resources and military uh, personnel over to defend Vienna, which allowed the uh, Reformation to advance uh, and allowed uh, a rediscovery of truth um, to take place uh, that had been lost uh, in the time period of the Middle Ages. So Christianity had become distorted. Um, Martin Luther was attempting to recapture uh, some of the ideas that had been lost. And the, by the Ottomans invading at that very time, it afforded the opportunity for that to take place. I want to read from one more historian, um, uh, writing a century before um, 
the uh, historian I just read. Uh, so this is a historian from the late 1800s, uh, but recounting that same time period, his name is James Wiley uh, in his book. Uh, it's actually a multi-volume uh, book, History of Protestantism, Volume 1, page 473, he writes the following, quote, When a crisis arose in the affairs of the Reformation, and the kings obedient to the Roman See had united their swords to strike, and with blows so decisive that they should not need to strike a second time, the Turk, obeying one whom he knew not, would straightway present himself on the eastern limits of Europe, and in so menacing an attitude that the swords unsheathed against the poor Protestants had to be turned in another quarter, the Turk was the lightning rod that drew off the tempest. Thus did Christ cover his little flock with the shield of the Muslim, end quote. So James Wiley um, goes even a step further and attributes to God uh, the work of the invasion uh, and says that this was the means by which God used to protect the Protestants and enable uh, this work to go forward uh, by uh, the Ottoman invasion at that very time, um, which, as we've been looking at before, again, brings to the forefront that same pattern that, in this case, uh, Martin Luther and those who would carry out the Reformation, uh, as that is getting going and, and as the idea is spreading, uh, their fellow Christians, these professed Christians, uh, attempt to uh, put a stop to it, even kill them, kill Martin Luther. And at that very same time, uh, not through any um, intention, uh, simply uh, providentially, uh, the Ottomans choose to invade, and by so doing, they distract the resources that could be used to put down the Protestant Reformation uh, and uh, enable the Protestant Reformation to go forward. Uh, and uh, even though the Ottomans eventually withdraw um, and are not able to capture Vienna, nonetheless, that time has gone by and the ideas of the Reformation have taken root uh, and have spread, thus enabling uh, the truths uh, of the Bible to be brought to the forefront yet again. And here's the thing. If you know anything about history, you understand that without the Protestant Reformation, America as we know it, with its ideas of free thought and a free society, would not exist. Thus, it could be argued that God not only saved Martin Luther through the invasion of the Turkish Muslims, but he saved us all in the West from the tyranny of popes and kings. So should this knowledge affect how we view Islam as a religion, and individual Muslims in particular? I asked Daniel to share how it has affected him personally. The perspective that I have on, uh, on Islam uh, is in looking at how it is that, um, with the understanding uh, of how it is that God has been at work with people throughout the past, um, God has always been interested in those who were genuinely and truly seeking him. Uh, and uh, there are those who, uh, across the board, in all faiths, um, in one way or another, um, are either truly and genuinely seeking to follow what it is that God has asked them to do, um, or there are those who uh, really, for one reason or another, don't. Um, and uh, so across uh, all denominations of Christianity, all variations, every uh, group uh, that professes to be a follower of Jesus, uh, there are in them uh, true and sincere uh seekers of truth, uh, those who genuinely desire to follow Jesus, uh, and there are those who just say that uh, that's what they're doing, but in fact don't. And obviously Christian history is replete with uh, examples of those who have claimed to be followers of God and yet have not acted like God would have them act. So the same thing would be 
uh, true uh, within Islam, that there are within Islam those who are true and sincere followers uh, of God. Uh, they want to be um, followers of the God of Abraham, um, uh, the Quran. Uh, also uh, refers to Jesus as being a prophet, um, the term used as Isa al-Masih. And uh, even though it's uh, not an accurate picture uh, based on what the Bible teaches and uh, the understanding that we have of who Jesus was, um, there are those that even with those little grains of truth um, that are present there uh, are sincerely and truly trying to follow God. And so uh, looking at um, uh, individuals um, who are Muslims, uh, I, I look at it from that perspective uh, of uh, how it is that uh, anyone who I encounter, uh, not only as a uh, person that God made in his image, um, but they also can be truly and sincerely seeking truth uh, and wanting to follow God. In terms of looking at it in, in its broader, perhaps um, social geopolitical uh, scope, um, I also have to look at it from the perspective that I need to be a true and genuine follower of Jesus and the truths that God has revealed in his word. And in doing so, I can't always uh, believe or depend on the fact that when I do that, what I do, or even necessarily the way in which God is going to work, is going to align with um, perhaps my fellow professed Christians. So, I may very well, as I stand for God and as I choose to follow what it is that he has uh, called me to do, I may end up uh, not aligning with a fellow Christian, and, and some of my fellow professed Christians may uh, disagree with me uh, and even attempt to, uh, in some way, uh, discourage me uh, or uh, try to stop me from doing what it is that I uh, believe is true, uh, as God has revealed himself in his word. And just because they call themselves Christians does not mean that I'm always going to agree with them on everything. Um, and there may be times in which God may very well use um, uh, Muslims or uh, Jews for that matter, um, but we're obviously focused here in particular on, on Muslims and, and Islam and its uh, geopolitical presence to further his purposes in this world. And what those are, I, I don't know how he would exactly carry those things out. Like you said, um, Speculating on the future, um, we don't always uh, have a clear picture uh, before events happen, um, but I, I try to live my life in such a way that I don't know where it is that God may very well provide help from, and as I seek to genuinely follow him, he may very well use things that I would consider to be unexpected or out of the norm or um, that his hand may very well work in a place that I wouldn't think it would. And I need to be open to that and follow as he would lead me. I concluded the interview by asking him the question that runs through as the theme for this podcast. How does this understanding of Islam and its heritage from the descendants of Ishmael and the other children of Abraham help us to be ready for Jesus today? It's easy to uh, assume that I know how it is that God works and to kind of uh, put him in a box and assume that uh, he is uh, going to work in the ways that I assume he will. Um, and when I have my my thinking uh, narrowed to that, uh, I may very well miss ways in which he would be working outside and apart from my preconceived ideas. And 
so there, as I walk with God and as I, I seek to follow him, his first and primary calling for me is to be faithful to him in whatever circumstance. Uh, that commitment has to come uh, primarily through the encouragement of my fellow Christians. Obviously, um, God has uh, called us to um, uh, stir up in one another love and good works, um, is how he says it in Hebrews 10.25. So there is a place for gathering together with fellow believers in Jesus and drawing strength from one another. But there may be times in which I don't align with or agree with what it is that my fellow Christians are doing. And I need to stand for truth regardless uh, of, of what um, those around me are doing. Um, uh, if it is indeed truth that God has revealed in his word, uh, and, and that is what uh, I can see uh, from what the Bible says. Um, at the same time, Yes, um, like you said, Travis, um, God may very well uh, provide in ways that would be unexpected, uh, and I need to be willing to uh, see that um, and move as God would lead and not be thrown off by it, but instead maintain my faith in God and my trust in him and see how it is that he is going to uh, providentially intervene uh, all the way up until Jesus returns, and the greatest intervention is going to be Jesus' return itself. Thanks for listening to this episode of Adventology. Our goal in this podcast is for you to be ready for Jesus. And the best way to be ready for Jesus is to spend time getting to know Him. Knowing Jesus is everything. And that is why we spent the time together today studying the biblical connections between Christianity and Islam. With so much happening in the world today, it is important to know that God is in control and will use whoever he needs to protect his people so his message of salvation and hope can be spread to the entire world. For more information about this episode or any of our previous episodes, I encourage you to check out our website, adventology.com. Or you can also pick up a free copy of my ebook, Seventh Day Rest. All right, well, I enjoyed our time together today, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode. Until then, Maranatha.